Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm joined by Aaron Griffith, author of God's Law and Order, The Politics of Punishment in Evangelical America, just published last year by Harvard University Press. Aaron is the Assistant Professor of History at Sattler College. Aaron, it's so great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's wonderful to be here. Well, Aaron, we're going to get into your book, God's Law and Order, in just a second. But first, I wonder if you might be willing to share with us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So I uh, teach history at a small liberal arts college here in Boston called uh, Sattler College. And I teach, uh, as is the custom in a lot of small uh, colleges, I teach a lot of different things. So I teach both American history, the history of Christianity. Um, I teach in our um, general education humanities curriculum. And that sums up uh, in in many ways who I am as a scholar. I am someone who really likes to come at topics from a variety of different angles and considers myself pretty interdisciplinary. Um, I did my training, my graduate training. uh, I have a master's of divinity uh, and my PhD from Duke Divinity School. And... um, was at Duke uh, working in American religious history uh, and um, the history of Christianity more generally, but as um, this custom in the divinity school was also working with theologians, uh, people who were doing um, more traditional religious studies. And uh, that's a big part of who I am too. Um, Someone who is a historian, but takes theological concerns um, seriously, really tries to uh, dig into the history of of Christian theology as well. I'm also really interested in uh, global Christianity, so history of uh, Christianity outside of um, the West, and uh, that's a big part of my teaching, Um, not as much my research, but that's something that I I love to work with students on is uh, history of Christian missions, uh, history of uh, evangelicalism uh, across the world. Well, fantastic, Aaron. So let's talk a little bit about what led you to write this particular book. What got you interested in the subject of evangelicals and the the politics of criminality? And and what is it that you're hoping to contribute with this uh, most recent volume? Yeah. So one of the reasons, um, the overriding academic reason, I guess you could say I wrote uh, this book, which began as my dissertation, um, was I uh, was very interested in trying to bridge two bodies of scholarship that I saw as incredibly important in their own ways, um, but that were not, I felt, talking to one another uh, as as well as they could. And the first was the history of evangelicals, um, American evangelicals. So there's been tons of just fascinating books on the impact, the influence of evangelical Christians in modern American politics, culture, their contributions, in, in so many different 
areas of American life, uh, from entertainment to economics to policy to the Cold War, uh, on and on and on. And I uh, have learned from so many scholars, including those who I, I worked with at Duke, uh, you know, learning about the influence of people like Billy Graham, um, you know, who an evangelist who at one time was probably the most popular person in America in his heyday, uh, and the influence of um, the religious right, the uh, counter influence of the evangelical left, and the, the broader ways that just evangelical religion has shaped um, why America um, is the way it is today. So I was very much a part of that conversation and was interested in that world, evangelical history, uh, Amer modern American religion and politics in my graduate work. But I started to see that there was another body of scholarship, um, the history of the carceral state or the history of modern American uh, criminal justice and its various intersections with uh, race and economics and uh, public policy. And I was started reading books by scholars like Elizabeth Hinton um, and Naomi Murakawa and James Foreman Jr. Uh, and perhaps most well-known is Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Um, and all of these books that in various ways sought to unpack the history of mass incarceration, why our nation has so many people in its prisons and why those people are disproportionately uh, people of color and poor. And that history became very interesting to me. Um, and I began to think, I wonder what these two histories, which in many ways follow similar chronological um, patterns, uh, have very similar touch points, the history of evangelicalism, the history of the carceral state, what do those have to do with one another? What can we gain by um, seeing where they line up, how actors and that are sort of common in one of these narratives uh, fit into the other and vice versa. Um, and that became really the task of my dissertation was to, to try to put those two bodies of work in conversation and look at figures like Billy Graham, who I mentioned earlier, who it turns out was an evangelist, uh, was someone who was very active in shaping modern American Christianity, but did so by talking about juvenile delinquency, for example, um, or uh, allying and supporting law and order candidates like Richard Nixon. Um, and this is where I, the dissertation and ultimately the book really went, was looking for those points of connection uh, that, that help us understand both modern evangelicalism and the history of uh, carceral state. So that's the academic explanation. Um, the more personal explanation, though, which I think you know, many of us have uh, sort of more personal reasons for why we get involved in the scholarly work we do, was that I myself was uh, active in um, prison ministry work. Um, so I uh, was volunteering with a prison ministry organization in North Carolina while I was in grad school um, for my master's and doctoral work, and I was really struck there by the presence of um, evangelical Christians, the work that they were doing inside of um, correctional spaces, and the ways that religion was so important within a space like prison. Um, and I, I wanted to dig more into that and really build on 
some really powerful work that's that's come out in you know the last decade or so from scholars like James Logan and Winifred Sullivan, uh, Tanya Erzin, uh, and and try to further understand how religion works inside a prison. Where do people who work, who volunteer, that are Christians in prison, where do they come from? Why are they there? And uh, I wanted to bring a historical lens to that question. Um, why, um, for example, do all of these evangelical prison ministries show up in the late 60s and 1970s? Like, where do those come from? Why do they show up when they do? Um, and so that, that was the personal reason for me, is like helping to understand what I was seeing, like right in front of me. Well, thank you for for sharing that, and and it does um, it does start to put together these two lines of thought that, at least when I even saw the the title of the book, I thought, oh, I never thought about how those two things grew up at the same time. And so, l- let's talk about how you got into starting to tell the story. You really began before the evangelical movement that we most commonly associate with the at least the the political evangelical movement which launched in the 1950s you start with this interwar period this is pre billy graham uh and and you really look at the the rise of of both american fundamentalism on the one hand and then the centralization of state power over crime especially around the roosevelt era these seem like strange bedfellows perhaps but but you tell a, an intriguing story about how these two started to find some some co-belligerence or, or collaboration opportunities um, with one another is that right that's right yeah um i when i first started the the project i thought that it was going to be a, a book that was really going to begin post-world war ii focus on the 1960s and 70s uh, and that I could safely begin in, you know, 1949. Um, and chapter two does begin in 1949, roughly. Uh, but the, the more I got into the research the, and the more I started reading and digging into the really helpful scholarship on the carceral state, I realized that the roots of American law and order go deeper than, you know, the the backlash of the 60s or the law and order candidacy of someone like Nixon or of, of Reagan, especially in the 80s. Um, and I was, I was reading works by scholars like Naomi Murakawa who begin their stories of the rise of the carceral state in uh, before uh, World War II. And I saw I, I thought, I wonder what religious, American religious people were saying about crime at this time, um, where I, I knew that sort of general stories around prohibition and, um, you know, broader conversations about religion and public life that were happening around, you know, questions like evolution. Um, but I, I started to wonder, like, what would crime uh what were they saying about crime? And so really chapter one becomes an exploration. It was an exploration of how crime concerns shaped uh, religious, especially Christian debates in the 1920s and following. And the where I begin the story in chapter one is with a court case, um, a court case of 
a, tri a murder trial of um, Leopold and Loeb, who are these two uh, University of Chicago students who were put on trial for um, murder of Bobby Franks. And this is a one of these trials of the century that like captures the public imagination. And uh, it's a story that has many resonances and similarities to the Scopes trial. Um, Clarence Darrow is actually present and, and active in the trial as well as he was in Scopes. And like Scopes, uh, it was a trial that was framed as a debate about um, really modernist versus uh, traditional values and understandings of um, the world. So the, the question became, um, why did these boys, no one doubted that they did it, but why did they do what they, why did they kill um, someone? And um, the modernist explanation uh, as advocated by people like Darrow was, well, they're products of their environment. They're products of um, this, uh, you know, the various traumas that informed their, their childhood, um, where conservatives, uh, including fundamentalist Christians, are saying, no, this is sin. Like, they chose to do this. They chose to commit this act. And uh, as a result, um, our focus should not be on environmental questions or uh, matters of psychology, but should just simply be on the fact that they are agents, moral agents who chose to do this, and we should respond accordingly. Um, and I saw this as a really important debate that really, I think, shapes discussions about crime and punishment for decades. Um, but here it was happening in the 20s, and religious figures were all over the place in it. So liberals uh, were, um, you know, trying to discuss crime as a social phenomenon, um, not just with this case, but more generally, but certainly with this case, fundamentalists. People like Carl McIntyre, um, uh, John Roach Stratton are really saying like this is a clear example of the wages of sin in our culture and where modernism leads. For them, it was no accident that Leopold and Loeb were at the University of Chicago, like this liberal um, bastion of higher ed. And uh, and I I begin the story there because I think it shows two things. One is that even though modernists and fundamentalists are disagreeing on this question of how to understand crime, they agree that crime is a public issue of religious concern, that uh, this is something Christians, um, Protestants, Catholics, and even Jews uh, as well should be talking about. And then secondly, they agree that the state should be doing something about this. Um, that this is not simply a, uh, you know, a, a matter that, you know, can be can be left alone, um, but that there should be some state response, ideally through ramped up criminal justice, uh, through investment in um, policing and law enforcement. And uh, I tried to show how this is both a story of division, but also consensus um, that emerging here is a religious consensus on crime that is going to then inform anyone who wants to, later in the 20th century who wants to engage in public religious discourse is going to have to figure out how they fit in this. And that's what brings me to uh, evangelicals. Is they adopt this consensus debate as a key part of who they are. And um, that's the rest of the book.
yeah, that's it's really insightful how um, this this early divide between the, the conservatives and the liberals over personal responsibility versus social responsibility really gets picked up here um, with with the rise of the evangelical revivalists. So you talk a lot about Billy Graham and, and others who aren't yet, uh, you know, tough on crime, so-called. But but how are they starting to pave the way that's going to lead towards some of the the more familiar um, examples in more recent history. Um, what is it that's happening, starting to happen in these these evangelical revivals? Yeah, so this is uh, sort of the next move of the book, and I, um, in my second chapter, I really try to show how after World War II, this religious consensus on crime. Um, is picked up by a, this neo-evangelical or new evangelical movement that is trying to thread the needle between fundamentalists on one hand and uh, liberals on the other. And people like Billy Graham, Carl Henry, uh, at Christianity Today, for example, um, they want to keep the doctrinal commitments, generally speaking, of the conservative fundamentalist movement. Um, they don't like the idea of abandoning anything uh, traditional theologically, or certainly not abandoning the Bible or a traditional reading of the Bible. But on the other hand, they are really frustrated with the ways that fundamentalists have been very aggressive and been uh, tonally problematic, um, especially the humiliation of the Scopes trial looms large, um, you know, where here, in, in the Scopes trial, you know, the, the fundamentalists come across looking uh, somewhat silly. And Graham and other neo-evangelicals want to thread that needle and want to find a way to be winsome, culturally winsome, and yet uh, theologically orthodox. So what they do, and this is the story of chapter two, is how these evangelists, and they are evangelists, they are not just evangelicals, they actually are going out to try to convert people in revivals, um, in tent meetings, in uh, ministries, as a way to be engaged culturally, to develop this winsome public witness, uh, they talk about delinquency, they talk about crime, they talk about issues that matter to Americans. Um, so the same issues that were animating debates in the 20s and 30s are, are what people like Billy Graham are talking about in the 40s and 50s. Um, so on, you know, the Billy Graham, for example, gets his start with Youth for Christ, which is a youth ministry organization, but it's youth ministry targeted at the question of delinquency, keeping kids off the streets, keeping kids out of trouble. It's like an animating concern. Um one of Billy Graham's first famous public converts is a guy named Jim Voss, who uh, is at his 1949 Los Angeles crusade. And Voss is formerly a wiretapper uh, with the mob. And he has this dramatic conversion experience. Uh, and, and Graham really plays up this. Like he, He's very excited about the fact that this guy has come to Christ and wants everyone to know about it. Voss himself is going to become a minister in the evangelical movement as well. And I saw here not only the continuation of this concern with crime, but there was this focus on the individual 
that fundamentalists had in the 20s. But here, uh, evangelicals really want to, they want to push the notion that individuals are loved by God and forgiven of their sins. And that includes their criminal actions. And this is a little counterintuitive because you can see even from the title of the book, like where the book is going to a law and order, punitive, tough on crime movement that emerges. But in the 40s and 50s, God's law and order means God loves you um, and God is going to forgive you. Now, that is a kind of law and order because it's about ending crime. It's about solving the crime problem. Um, but it is one that is, is very much focused on uh, forgiveness and the, the answer the gospel provides to uh, individual sin. Now, um, I really try and my second chapter of the book to show how this had profound implications for not only how people talked about crime, but for ministry. So lots of evangelicals begin to go into uh, the places they see as criminal um, with quotes around it, uh, criminal, which are cities. So evangelicals think the suburbs are not where the, the crime is happening. It's these um, scary, you know, urban areas where we need to go. And they do. So people like David Wilkerson launch ministries to, in New York. Jim Voss starts his own uh, youth ministry in uh, New York as well. And this, uh, these ministries are marked by that same concern for individuals caught up in lives of crime that could be very, I think, compelling to many. Like it, I think, was very much a genuine form of outreach where evangelicals sought the well-being and um, sought to show love to people who were in gangs or delinquents. The problem was, though, there are two things. One is that evangelicals continued to hold this individualist um, framework for how they understood crime, so individual moral accountability. And then they also placed the burden of uh, on uh, cities. They saw cities as the place where that were suspect, that were morally depraved, where um, people were, you know, uh, faced by temptation to get caught up in gangs, delinquency. And those two uh, features of their imagination, of the evangelical imagination, are going to then play into the tough on crime consensus of the 60s. So continuing to focus on individual moral accountability and then cities as the site for where uh, where crime happens and where it needs to be addressed. Hmm. Yeah, and of course, this starts to bring in, and, and you allude to throughout this chapter about how this brings in a, a, an obvious racial tension as these generally suburban white evangelicals are targeting in their rhetoric, these urban centers, which are dominantly minority communities. So yep. as we start moving into this next generation, which I appreciated how you ended this chapter saying that the, the way that things end kind of from this era, from this Billy Graham era, it was not guaranteed that evangelicalism would take a tough on crime kind of penal um, avenue, 
But then as we move into the 60s and the 70s with social unrest and protests and, and rioting and, and, other, and other civil protests, it really starts to harden um, the, there was the, the evangelical position on this. So how are evangelicals starting to distinguish themselves from other yeah. Christian groups uh, with respect to, say, capital punishment as we start moving into your third and fourth chapters? Right. Yeah. So the third and fourth chapters really try to zero in on the shift. Um, and the shift, I think, happens in, in two ways. And the, the third chapter focuses more on the intellectual uh, transformation that occurs. So why someone like Billy Graham transitions from this, you know, God's love as a solution to crime to a tough on crime, uh, more punitive response. The the following chapter then looks more at the policy implications. So what are what in practice does did that look like? It's not just simply more op-eds and Christian magazines or more sermons, it, although it was that. Uh, what actually changed in terms of evangelical political engagement? Um, and I think the the change. There were a number of reasons for the change, um, but I should note that the change didn't happen. For many, there was not a change. Um, for many, the, the the earlier punitive sentiment of the twenties and thirties was always the default position. Um, and I think especially for uh, self-described uh, fundamentalists that, that remained. Um, so, you know, I, I think we shouldn't say that everyone adopted this more loving ministerial sentiment that, that Billy Graham and David Wilkerson and others did. But for those who did have that sentiment, I think the change comes about because of a growing sense that the 60s are a site of conflict um, between uh, of a culture war, really, and that sides, people need to take sides on a number of uh, burning political questions around race, around civil unrest, around communism, uh, around economics, around Vietnam, and Evangelicals realize we have to like take sides. This is these are as as political parties are aligning or realigning on certain issues. We have to uh, stake our claim here. We can't simply talk in general terms about God's love. Like we, if we want to be influential, if we want to exert um, power in the public square, like we will have to have something to say about the law. We'll have to have something to say about politics. And that means taking a stand one way or the other on the death penalty, taking a stand one way or another on the numerous criminal procedure rulings that the, that the Warren Supreme Court is putting out. Um, and evangelicals are saying all kinds of things about the Supreme Court in the 60s on questions like church and state, prayer and schools. And the Warren Court becomes a, um, a site of their ire and or a, a place where they are increasingly critical as well on issues like uh, how criminal defendants are treated. Um, so the Miranda v. Arizona becomes sort of this controversial case where the question of whether or not you have the right to remain silent, uh, whether or not you have the right to an attorney, all of those 
rights that we actually take, I think, for granted now were in many ways like up in the air for a lot of people, or at least how they were going to be parsed was uh, certainly there's a conversation about that. And evangelicals took sides on those questions and generally speaking, took more punitive, uh, a more punitive side that stressed individual moral accountability and respect for law enforcement. Um, and I think the way race plays into this is very interesting and complicated as well. Like evangelicals are especially more moderate evangelicals like Graham are really wrestling with the civil rights movement. And they are uh, broadly supportive of the aims of racial equality but are resistant to certainly protests, marches, and um, they're speaking in sort of very cautious terms about their hopes for desegregation and for uh, an end to racial hatred. But what happens in the late 50s and 60s is that as the civil rights movement uh, secures important, uh, some important victories, there's a backlash um, and evangelicals, I think some of them get caught up in this um, white religious backlash to the gains of the civil rights movement. But others, and I would put Graham in this category, um, see with the civil rights movement the arrival of a new possibility that, that a new possibility that law can secure um, public, even religious goods. Um, so law and order can secure racial equality because it can keep uh, segregationists from doing things that are unjust. Um, but law and order can also uh, ensure public safety. Um, and I think it's that dual move that someone like Graham makes that is uh, it's something that is easily missed, but a big part of how moderate white evangelicals see the, what they would say are the racially beneficial um, possibilities of law enforcement itself. Um, I'll give one, one more example of this. Uh, a person I write about in the book um, is a congressman named John Anderson, who's an Illinois uh, Republican who's an evangelical, very outspoken about his faith, and over the course of the 60s becomes more progressive on civil rights issues, becomes much more aware of the challenges of, uh, that, that black Americans are facing. And by the end of the 60s becomes supportive of civil rights legislation, sometimes really causing him problems with his constituents who don't like it. Um, but at the same time, Anderson is making that gradual shift towards a more civil rights friendly uh, evangelical position, Anderson is also supporting uh, tough on crime legislation. And he sees the two as linked. He doesn't see it as contradictory or, or, or anything. He's like basically saying, I want to protect black Americans from racists and segregationists. And I also want to protect America with the force of the law. And the force of the law is gonna work for both, it's going to work to help Black Americans, and it's going to secure um, the nation more generally. And I think this is a, a this really allows moderate evangelicals a way to speak in a winsome manner about race. But of course, 
the damage that it does is that it obscures the inequities built into the law enforcement apparatus to begin with. So where people are getting policed, uh, how policing is working, the ways that, um, you know, the, the economic uh, inequities that are still a feature of minority neighborhoods um, and the products of things like redlining, that is all missed as a as part of the equation um, for why someone might be committing crime or why a certain neighborhood deserves to be policed in a certain way. So that's the uh, where the story goes into chapters three and four. It's very interesting. And so these evangelicals who are living through this, this major change in the way society approaches criminal justice and as you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of people find themselves incarcerated. There's this massive population that now uh, the evangelical community sees as as an object of, of their of their compassionate care or their evan- evangelistic mission. So your your book really concludes with these two chapters that start to talk talk about how el- evangelicals are responding to this new reality of a huge prison ecosystem in our society, both um, missionally and in reform efforts. What do you see happening in those um, those subsequent decades leading up to the present day? Yeah. So the concern with um, both crime and law and order, but also with the hearts of offenders themselves remains constant. And whereas in the the 40s and 50s, I think that really manifested itself with evangelicals in ministry to gangs and juvenile delinquents and ministry in cities. In the late 60s and the 70s and the 80s, where it really begins to take hold is in prisons themselves. As you mentioned, the places that are growing, the, the, the sites where more and more people are, are winding up because they're uh, incarcerated. Um, because of these policies that are being put in place. Uh, and evangelicals, the you know, they really try to develop forms of prison ministry work in the 70s, especially, that are intensely evangelistic. So they see themselves as very different than the chaplaincy, the state-sponsored chaplaincies um, in prison that were common are, are common today, but that really began to take hold earlier in the 20th century. Um, State-funded chaplaincy, generally speaking, even though a lot of Christians were involved in it, um, was supposed to be religiously neutral. Uh, it was supposed to be for everyone. It was not supposed to be uh, evangelistic, or there was not supposed to be proselytizing. Um, and this is in part because prisons are religiously diverse places and uh, there was a a desire for sensitivity to lots of different faith expressions, but also because these are state funded um, positions and uh, evangelicals try to work around that though. And most of them develop their own ministries that are not beholden to the uh, notion of religious neutrality um, and that also seek other funding models besides um, tax dollars, at least in the 70s uh, and, and 80s. And so organizations that emerge are uh, um, the most famous is, is Prison Fellowship, which is begun by Charles Colson 
uh, a former Nixon operative who himself is incarcerated and uh, has an experience in prison that really shapes his own uh, faith. And Colson develops Prison Fellowship Ministries, uh, which initially begins as an evangelistic outreach uh, and discipleship training uh, ministry. Um, and that's pretty emblematic of a lot of, uh, of prison ministries that emerge at this time, um, whether they're actual ministries going inside of prisons or whether they're creating uh, networks of volunteers or whether they're building, um, whether do, they're doing TV broadcasts inside of prisons or just creating a curriculum, uh, Bible studied guides. Uh, I, I would say that this, the evangelicals are really active in, in all of that. But they don't really have much to say about the problem of the prison itself. Um, most of the evangelicals working in the 70s in prisons know that something is up. <laughs> like they can go in prisons and see for themselves, and they have seen for themselves how difficult the conditions are, the inequities of who actually ends up in prisons, um, and the broader perils of law and order sentiment that have captured the imaginations of so many who usually aren't doing prison ministry. But it isn't until the early 80s that this, uh, I think, that a shift happens. And that's with Colson. Colson realizes, you know, we can't just go in and preach the gospel. We can't be okay with simply evangelizing and hoping to save the souls of people who are incarcerated. We have to do something about the system itself. And he's not the first criminal justice reformer, Christian criminal justice reformer uh, of the, you know, at this time. There's others who are doing that work, especially liberal Protestants. Um, but what Colson does that's different is bring an evangelical twist to it all. And so for Colson, he remains a conservative throughout. He remains someone who's skeptical of the big government problems facing America. Um, and he brings his own individualistic uh, sense of the, the gospel's relevance to, to individual souls to bear on this problem. And for him, the problem is that we have a big government program that's not working, and it's called the prisons. Um, and what do you do in the Reagan era with big government programs that don't work? you make them smaller, you dismantle them. And this, I think, animates a lot of conservative criminal justice reform work that's even being done today. Um, you can look at different groups, both Christian and, and uh, non-Christian, that call themselves right on crime, that say we are bringing to bear conservative principles to the issues in criminal justice uh, on, on matters of reform. And I think Colson was a big part of why that, where that movement came from. But Colson had problems. And one of the biggest problems is that he was dealing with a law and order constituency of evangelicals who were pro-capital punishment, uh, pro-police, uh, who didn't really see that big of an issue with racial disparities in prisons, especially in the 80s and 90s. And I think uh, this is the constant challenge Colson had was dealing with many Americans, Mer American Christians who were either skeptical or saw reform as secondary um, because of 
their previous their predispositions to uh, being pretty uh, punitively minded. Um, I end the book on this note. I end the book by trying to show how, like, right now we just you know finished an election cycle, a presidential election cycle, where the Republican candidate uh, Donald Trump was the law and order candidate. He called himself that all the time. Um, at the same time, he also proclaimed his desire to have criminal justice reform and hailed his, you know, passage uh, of the First Step Act, um, you know, this, this big piece of federal criminal justice reform legislation. And I think that this is a pretty good encapsulation of the, the evangelical legacy of on, on criminal justice in modern America. Trump himself is not an evangelical, but is someone who's courting evangelicals with both of those moves, um, with the punitive and the uh, reformist bent. And uh, that, I think, the book ends there, um, trying to understand, you know, this longer history, like it, how it helps us make sense of what we've just seen. Hmm. Well, Aaron, you've written such a such an important book that I you I would just say anyone who's listening can tell we've only we've only scratched the surface of the of the excellent research that is available um, that you've documented throughout this this long and important history of evangelicals' relationship with criminal uh, politics and criminal legislation over the last half a century. Well, um. Aaron, if you if you don't mind sharing with us, um, now that you've finished this project, what are you turning your attention to at the moment? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, I'm mainly turning my attention to not writing a book <laughs> for a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I I actually though have just completed an article um, that is on the influence of evangelicals in more contemporary policing debates, especially mm -hmm. ministry to uh, law, law enforcement officers themselves. And uh, that article should be coming out uh, later this year in the Journal of Religion. Um, the, you know, what, what was really something I did not get to dig into a ton in my book, but that I'm hoping will be, a, it's part of this article and then hopefully part of uh, projects that I'm taking up in the future is more attention to not only the policy dimensions or the, the sort of federal or state uh, policy uh, positions or um, statements around issues of crime and punishment, but actually how religion shapes the lives of individual law enforcement officers, um, not only driving mm -hmm. them for, you know, for how they deal with criminal crime issues, but actually how religion matters for them personally. Um, so something I talk about in this article that's coming out soon is uh, devotional guides and Bibles written um, or Bibles published for police officers that aren't really, hmm. most of them aren't really about crime at all. Like they're more about the just challenges of being a police uh, officer in um, America today and, and how the Christian faith speaks to that experience. Um, of course, the way that the Christian faith speaks to that experience um, is often by reminding officers of their divine vocation, um, that they are 
that their work is just and their work is good and needed, um, which is both helpful for the officers who are experiencing stress, but I argue that it sometimes pushes evangelicals to overlook the problems um, endemic to American policing, um, both the issues of police brutality, uh, misconduct, uh, racial inequities that are there. Um, so that's hmm. one article I'm I'm uh, finishing up right now. It should be out soon. And then I'm I think more generally the uh, what I would am hoping at some point to dig into are the stories beyond evangelicalism that intersect with this these these concerns of criminal justice. So evangelicals are not the only ones worried about crime and punishment in the 20th century. Um, Roman Catholics were also very concerned and had a lot of influence in these conversations as well. And I'm hoping that in the future I can do some more work on uh, that engages traditions and questions outside the immediate evangelical um, uh, orbit um, into other uh, traditions. Hmm. Well, those sound like excellent projects. I can't wait to read them. This has been a conversation with Aaron Griffith. He's the author of God's Law and Order, The Politics of Punishment in Evangelical America, published by Harvard University Press. Aaron, thanks so much for coming and talking with us about your book. Thanks so much for having me. This is wonderful. I appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Christian Studies on the New Books Network. You can find out more information about all of the author interviews that we have available on our website at newbooksnetwork.com. And of course, if you found this episode interesting, I invite you as always to think of someone who might find this interview interesting and share it with them. It's the best way to share the word about what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.